Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Roll Up, the official Phil Singer Games podcast. I am your co-host, Sam Fain. I'm joined this week by Mike Molesky. Mike, how are you? Fantastic, Sam. Excited for tonight. This is, yes. a, this is, a, this is a big night. It is. It is. I'm very, very excited myself. Uh, unfortunately, Todd cannot be here with us. He's feeling a little under the weather. Um, he partied too hard with the Boy Scouts this past weekend. That sounds wrong now that I've said it out loud. Yeah, I, this is, I, I, I do not approve that message. Yeah, maybe I should cut that. No, I'll leave it in. But the point is, is that he is not here with us, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm sure he'll be back with us uh, next week um, for another episode. Uh, but this is a little different. It's it's the Sam and Mike show. And uh, we also have a very special guest, uh, our main event. Have uh, we done a Sam and Mike show before? We never have. This is a first. I don't think we have. I think yeah. this is the first time. Todd's always been there with us, so who knows what's going to happen tonight? This is this is this is bad. This is like going on a field trip without a chaperone. It really is. <laughs> um, but uh, we we've got a great main event for you tonight. We have Brian R. Solomon, the author of Blood and Fire: The Unforgettable Story of Pro Wrestling's Original Sheik. Um, super super excited to to have him on the show. Uh, grateful for uh, fellow promoter uh, Travis Heckel for helping to set that up. Um, should be a great time. Uh, but before we get to that, we, we did want to run through our teasers real quick uh, and start off with the teaser from Friday night uh, for the Legends Prime release for quarter two. And the announcement was none other than Prince Karis, the 3,500-year-old mummy from Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that this name has perhaps been controversial maybe to a vocal minority i don't know uh, i don't want to speak for everybody or anything but there's certainly been some people that that have have uh, voiced a little dissent uh if you ask me and i don't say this because i'm just shilling for the game i think it's a unique fantastic addition to the game uh i i you know i didn't really know a whole lot about prince Karis because i'm not quite there yet in in my my watch through smoky mountain um but you know doing some reading on him and getting ready for everything uh it's gonna be a hell of a lot of fun and this is one of those rare opportunities where I can say I have seen the stats um, for the card. So I, I think that uh, it's it's perfect for, you know, what it is. Um, Mike, your thoughts uh, on Prince Karis? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes people get hung up on the, the legends piece of Legends of Wrestling. And, you know, while we do have Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers, Harley Race, Luthez, you know, which are all great. We also have, you know, this is an enhancement talent four pack we're putting out now, right? With right. So I think we, we try and look at the whole history of the game. And part of wrestling is, and, and it's something we're going to cover in our interview later, I'm sure, is that, you know, wrestling's about characters, right? And 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 you need, you know, colorful characters is what has made, re- put wrestling on the map and made it. Whether um, it's a significant one, like the Sheik, or some other characters who are like, have shorter runs, lesser known you know, not quite as pivotal to the history of wrestling, but the presence of colorful characters, I think, is wrestling. And, you know, to have somebody like this, I mean, I think I saw somebody say that they were going to now have him play the role of Teddy Long's, like, most feared wrestler on the <laughs> right. on the roster. I love it. I mean, it's yeah. a great it's a great creative way to use a character like this, right? You know, you, 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 you stepped out of line. Okay, now you get to see the, this undead monster. Okay, 
works. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it's all good. Holla, holla, holla. Right? Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm with you 100%. And I think that the cool thing is to, especially considering that we released a Memphis set uh, just last December, that having a character like Prince Karis, it, you know, of course, being unique to the Smoky Mountain wrestling, uh, it would fit in perfectly with, with a Memphis fed, would fit in perfectly with really any fed, because I, I cannot think of a lot of territories or promotions that didn't at least have some character like this go through, maybe not St. Louis, but, you know, I mean, you always, like you said, it's about characters, and 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 I think that um, you know having a character like this at your disposal uh, could be a lot of fun. And for people that you know aren't interested, that's totally fine. Clearly, no one's ever going to force you to to use them. Um, but again, Legends of Wrestling, you said it best, Mike. Uh, you know, we want everybody. You know, we we don't just want the Luthezes and the Buddy Rogers and the Gorgeous Georges. You know, we, we really want everybody because wrestling history has been built on the backs of so many people that aren't just the stars and aren't just the champions. And I think having somebody like Prince Karis, uh, you know, whether he wrestled for, for two months or, or, or two decades, uh, it's worth having um, to add to this wonderful tapestry of characters that we already have in the game. Well said, Sam. I am just going <laughs> to drop in where Todd would jump in right now and say something. I'm just going to say well said. Um, so that would bring us, of course, to Monday night, which would give uh, us the new announcement for War Games 2092 reimagined. And we got none other than uh, Warner's take on Dreadnought. Um, I really like this art. Uh, I, I think that it, it's perfect for the character. Um, it's very reminiscent of the original without necessarily being like a you know straight out and out copy of the original uh, Dreadnought. That's looking tough, um, you know, straight out of the trans evolver. Um, and, and I think uh, he, he's here to, to mess stuff up. Um, I'll keep it PG. Uh, so I'm, I'm digging this. Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, the artwork really evokes the original uh, character, um, the original Chuck Carter, but, but, but has its own identity. I like it. I think that he's, he's one of those pivotal Characters. I mean, we get the Trans Evolver. You know, li- we get a, a live viewing of what the Trans Evolver is capable of here, right? It's <laughs> it's uh, it's the first time, and I th- I just you know I think it, uh, Warner did a good job. I think it's going to be you know f- fun fun card for a lot of people to use. Yeah, yeah, um, and I've always been a fan of you know Comrade Terrace Last Dreadnought. So uh, looking forward to uh, as I've said, rinse, wash, repeat with me getting getting up to these years again uh, in my GWF, so I can so I can use these cards. Uh, and then for Wednesday's announcement for our Indies uh, announcement uh, for the best of the Indies 2022, we have EJ and Duca joining the game, uh, current MLW Tag Team Champion with Calvin Tankman. Of course, uh, he spent time uh, not only in MLW, but uh, did a stint in WWE uh, with NXT as well. Uh, also a professional bodybuilder, a college football player, um, and uh, quite a standout. I mean, six foot eight, you know, 280, uh, shredded. Um, I, I think a really interesting guy to, to have in the game and someone that could have a pretty high ceiling, uh, quite frankly. You know, I think that he's, he's at a point in his wrestling career where, you know, he's, he's still learning the ropes, uh, no pun intended, but, uh, I, I think is someone that could certainly go far. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, how his career continues and, and he's already a champion. So, um, really, really great announcement, wonderful addition to the game. And, and I'm pretty sure that this was a Zeke, uh, signing. So, uh, once again, thank you, Zeke. 
Yeah, at the risk of sounding like the uncharted territory guys that probably sue me for gimmick infringement, but I didn't know a lot about him. And you know, then I obviously looked him up and saw his you know his you know old stage name and and, and recognized it. But uh, I mean, dude is legit huge. Um, yeah. You know, I think we you know he he's got a he's got the look and uh he's obviously already seen some success so it'll be very interesting to follow his career and i'm i'm thrilled that we have him in the game now yeah this is one of those rare instances where sometimes werner's art you know we, we, we joked about this sometimes werner's art makes the uh, wrestlers look just a little bit more cut than they are in real life and this is one of those cases where it's like how it would it be possible to make him look more cut than he is in real yeah, life yeah <laughs> i don't think it i don't think it is i mean yeah. this guy's just this guy's just i mean and he's big yeah i mean right big. yeah six eight i mean that's the thing too is it's like you get to, you know some of these guys you get to a certain height and it just kind of feels like they you know to, to, to have that kind of muscle mass along with the height is it's just impressive it's impressive so uh, i think this is going to be a great addition to the game of course his tag team partner calvin tankman is already in the game so you can put the two of them together if you like um and uh, i imagine again not having seen the stats on this one uh but i imagine he's going to have uh perhaps some tag mechanics along with uh you know probably a, a strong decent set of, of single stats as well um really looking forward to announcing uh the next name for the indie set i think it's going to be one that people uh, are excited for i know that i am um, but, uh, hopefully we will be announcing that as sets are mailing. We'll see. I don't know. Mike, do you have any updates on that from Fed HQ? Uh, I, I think that, uh, we're going to be a little, a little late, but I'll let the tournament master make an announcement, but, uh, you know, being a little under the weather, I think that slowed some things down here on, on the yeah. Fed HQ side. Yeah, and I, you know, and I, I tried to, uh, uh, for my part, kind of prepare people for that a little bit by adding in the early June aspect to the to the teasers because I did think that that was going to be a little bit more realistic, um, you know, along the way. And uh, certainly, you know, if it was a perfect world, I, we would all love to have the cards sooner rather than later. Um, but but we certainly won't delay too long. Um, we'll, we'll get them. To no, it's just that we we, we we you know we got to get things done right and we just to uh based on what uh the way todd's feeling i think we're just going to give him a couple days to get feeling good before exactly. we worry too much yeah yeah that's he does important. enough come on people you know exactly his, his well-being is more important um so yeah this week you know we're not gonna to do the the normal shindig with all the extra added bits and baubles that we sometimes throw into the podcast because we want to get you straight to this interview with brian solomon um but before we do mike anything that you want to say uh you know kind of uh, about the book about brian um you know hype us up man (laughs) well i mean i i think i mean it's it's i don't buy a lot of wrestling books um you know, I, I, I don't have as much time to read as I used to. And so I'm, I'm a little judicious with which books I buy, but, um, you know, I, ha- I had to pick this book up. I was not disappointed. Um, you know, I think people are going to, you know, just love hearing from Brian himself. If you haven't heard him on his podcast, on any of the other podcasts, I think, uh, this is going to be a great interview to sort of, you know, get a little deeper in. And if you haven't picked up this book, it's absolutely one I recommend. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, I I will be completely honest. When I first heard about this book, 
I was a little skeptical. Uh, I, I thought to myself, you know, I don't know that I know who this guy is. And I don't know if uh, a book could really be written about a guy like the Sheik because he does seem so impenetrable. You know, he gave himself over to kayfabe so much that there, you know, that you, you just fully. How could you? Yeah, fully. Exactly. How could you tell the the, the man you know behind uh, behind the cafe, if you will? Uh, and I, I think that uh, as it got closer to release, and you know he got those those interviews uh, like with, with Cornette in particular, uh, and I heard Stu uh, uh, talking about it a little bit, I believe, um, as well as the the rest of the Uncharted Territory crew. Uh, I, I, I you know I was kind of like, all right, I think I'm going to give this one a shot, and. You know, it came out. I picked it up and I, I started reading it. I had to put it down because I was, you know, working on this show. But uh, immediately, I was just struck by the fact that this is such a well-written book. It's one of those books that I don't care who it was about. I was going to want to read it because it's written so well. And um, you know, that's probably probably the highest marks I can give a book, right? You know, you've done your job. If 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 I'm just in based off the writing, much less the subject matter, um, which is not something I can always say about wrestling books, quite frankly. So uh, thrilled to be able to bring you an interview with Brian Solomon, uh, author of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Uh, he's also written a number of other books, including Godzilla FAQ, uh, Pro Wrestling FAQ, WWE Legends, which is a book that came out in 2006. Uh, I know that there are folks out there that have that book. Uh, I bought it when it came out, and uh, I, I loved it. It was a book that I actually had on me when I was on tour with Children's Theater for a while. Um, just some wonderful capsule sized biographies of a lot of, you know, capital wrestling and WWF talent, um, from the, you know, 50s, 60s and 70s in particular. Um, and also uh, the host of the podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle. Um, again, thrilled to be able to bring this interview. I'm going to shut up so that we can talk to Brian Solomon. All right, promoters, I am so excited uh, because Mike and I are joined with Brian Solomon, who, of course, is the author of Blood and Fire, the uh, new and really only biography of The Sheik. Um, we're super excited to have you here with us. I uh, want to give a quick uh, thanks to Travis Heckel, a fellow promoter, and, of course, has done a lot of great work for the game over the years for helping to set this interview up. Um, but, Brian, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy to be here, as always. Uh, to love talking about um, the Sheik and the book and wrestling in general. So, Excellent. Well, uh, those are all things we love talking about as well. Uh, our... Um the, the creator of the game, um, Tom Filsinger, uh, he is a huge fan of The Sheik. Um, in fact, I think uh, it would not be an exaggeration to say The Sheik is one of his favorite, if not his favorite wrestler. Uh, so uh, this, this fits nicely, uh, I think, with, uh, with, with the theme. Um, the, the book, of course, is out. Uh, it's, it's been out now for uh, about a month, a little over a month, right? And uh, it's done yeah. very well. Uh, they went through the, the first printing uh, already. Is that correct? Well, um, Amazon was sold out on the day of sale, the on-sale <laughs> day, which, you know, I think is more of a problem with Amazon. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the demand was much bigger than was expected. That's the thing. And Amazon took a few weeks to get on their feet and really get enough copies in stock. Uh, so it, it uh, but now it's, you know, available everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up getting my copy electronically just because, you know, I didn't want to wait. And uh, I, I figured to get my 
opportunity to get the you know a physical copy sooner or later. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, I've I, I I loved it. Um, I didn't have the opportunity, unfortunately, because there's a lot of other things going on to completely finish it. But I was able to get through uh, most of it and 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 skim uh, what I what I didn't have under my belt before the interview. Luckily, uh, Mike, of course, has finished it. Um, but I think that we would both say that it, it's one of the best uh, wrestling related books that, that we've ever read. I, I think that, um, you know, not to patch on the back too hard that uh, honestly it's, it's erudite, uh, it's objective, uh, it's eloquent, passionate. It's, it's all the things that you want from a good biography, much less a wrestling biography. So uh, kudos to you and congratulations you. on the success, because I think that it, it has been a success. Um, one of the things too, you know, speaking about the anticipation, we have a lot of our promoters, that's what we call you know, our game fans that uh, were anticipating the book, talking about the book for, for quite a while uh, in, in the weeks leading up to its release. And uh, I, I know that there's been uh, some conversation since uh, about the book. And I think that people are just across the board. And I know this is something you probably heard a lot. So surprised with the uh, amount of information, the depth of information you were able to uncover. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about, uh, you know, how you got started on your research and, and what you found most helpful. Sure. Do we want to say the book that we're talking about? <laughs> yes. We, before we uh, jump into that? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, th- I, you know, Blood and Fire is is the book, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, you know, we're here with Brian Solomon, the author. So we'll, we'll just be clear in case we, we missed that in the intro there. But uh <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, it, it is a, a fantastic book. And, and, and I think that to Sam's point, I did read it. I actually ordered it, the Kindle version when I heard it was on back order and actually got to read it when it first came out. So I was one of the lucky few. Uh, but yeah, to get to, to Sam's question, you know, sort of what was that that like, you know, getting into this process? Well, for people that don't know, it's a biography of the original Sheik. Uh, the title is Blood and Fire, the Unbelievable Real-Life Story of Wrestling's Original Sheik. It's the first biography ever attempted on the original Sheik Ed Farhat, not talking about the Iron Sheik, Khazru Vaziri, who is much better known today, but in the grand scheme of things was nowhere near as big of a star or as important of a historical figure. So, you know, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was that I felt like this was a very important figure in the history of wrestling and nobody had ever tackled his life story. I couldn't think of anybody that was as important or as big as he was that had not had a book done about them. So, I felt like it had to be done. And if anything, too, it's to preserve the legacy, you know, because it's a funny thing. I'm, you know, I'm in my late 40s. I've been a wrestling fan for 35 years. And I could even say in my youth, even though the Sheik is before my time, but in my youth, the Sheik was much better known among wrestling fans. And you'd read about him in magazines and the name would always come up when they were talking about the biggest stars in wrestling history. And you hear him much less. You hear about him much less now. And I'm, I'd like to think that I'm changing that a little bit now with this book because I get people even who who weren't familiar with him who have been interested to read the book and find it and, and learn about him. So I guess, you know, that's a victory for sure. But yeah, did you did you really expect to when you went through this? You know, obviously you did it because for all the reasons you just said, but did you really expect all the, the buzz and excitement that sort of came out of the anticipation of this book? Well, the thing is, I think a lot of it happened because of me, because I've, I haven't shut up about this thing 
since 2019, I've been going on and on and on and building an audience and getting people intrigued. And that's how it eventually found its way to Jim Cornette, which was, that was a game changer. That was what put it to a whole other level. But again, that was because of my campaigning and politicking and trying to get this book out there. And then once I started getting it into the hands of people with of influence, more influence than myself, um, it just started to take on a life of its own. That's the thing. I don't think anyone expected the um, the you know the demand that would arise, which is why, like for example, ECW Press um, put out the Andre the Giant biography a couple of years ago that Pat Laprade and Bertrand Hebert did. That and that got to be a hardcover book, which the Sheik did not. And and on the surface, I said, well, of course, that's Andre the Giant. But it just goes to show, too. You know, looking at this book, probably a lot of people thought, well, this will be like a moderately successful or you know, kind of low-profile wrestling biography. But it's gotten to be way bigger than that. Like you know, the, over the course of building it. For almost three years now. So, I mean, it was it was a surprise insofar as, you know, I was surprised that my, uh, you know, it marketing, self-marketing of this book has worked so well. So, you know, that was a surprise, I guess. So, you know, going back um, to what I was talking about earlier with with your research, I mean, it's clear that it's been pretty exhaustive. And I've heard you talk in other interviews about like Ancestry.com and, and, and using, you know, all sorts right. of records and his military records. And, you know, I'm curious, what was your starting point um, when you began the research for the book? Well, you know, uh, the first actually the first thing that I started looking into doing was interviewing people. Even before I was going onto websites and archives and things, I wanted to try to track down people who would have good stories. I just thought that would be a good starting point to start to piece together, uh, you know, because the research of archives and newspaper articles and things, a lot of that can be kind of dry and it's good to have it's good to have the facts and the data but then you have to shape it into something interesting so that's why i felt like the personal anecdotes and recollections would be a better place to start and honestly let's see i signed the contract in november 2019 and i didn't even start i didn't write a single word until the summer of 2020 so mm-hmm. all through the end of 2019 and the first few months of 2020 was just interviewing, strictly interviewing. And then for anybody that's done that, you know, the transcribing, I'm a cheapskate, so I don't have anybody do it for me. And honestly, I even tried to use transcription software. It was a nightmare, a nightmare, because I think so much of it is such specific, like wrestling terminology. And, and you've got people, some of the people I interviewed are very old and their voices are not as clear. And so I had to do it all myself and the transcriptions took like weeks and weeks and weeks to do. And, and, you know, um, I was lucky to find some really good people. I mean, unfortunately, most of the best people are gone. You know, I couldn't talk to Bobo Brazil or, or mighty Igor or, you know, bull, bull Curry and, and, and people like that. And the Sheik himself, obviously, but I did get Terry Funk. I did get Kevin Sullivan. I did get flying Fred Curry I did get, you know, Dave Brzezinski, Supermouth Dave Drayson, who was his last manager. 
people like that that were able to talk to me. Um, Tom Burke, of course, the the wrestling historian, Tim Hornbaker, like people that would have insights either because they knew him and worked with him or worked for him or because they had also done a lot of wrestling research in other areas. So I talked to Dave Meltzer at length, you know, cause he, he, he knew a lot about the Sheik's life and career. And, you know, he remembered him out in California when he was a kid, when he would come out to LA and things like that. So, you know, uh, that started to help me piece the story together. Those kind of stories. I, t- I, d- I wound up doing the last interviews with several people, actually. It was, it, w- it got to be a little bit off putting. Like I started thinking like, is this book cursed? You know, people <laughs> keep dropping off. I did the you know last interview with killer Tim Brooks, the last interview with the Detroit wrestling historian, Mark Bujan, the last interview with Bobby Davis, the wrestling manager who ran opposition to the Sheik, um, Terry Dart, the photographer in, t- in, in Toronto, all these people um, that talk to me and they're not here anymore, unfortunately, to see the book come to, to light. I tried to get Pompero Furpo, who was in really bad shape at the time. I was communicating with his daughter. He passed away before I could get to him. Both of the Sheik's sons, Eddie and Tommy, died in the process of my working on this book. I mean, it was bizarre, bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, one thing I'll add, uh, your author's note in particular, I, I, I thought was just wonderful and, and felt very compassionate to me because you, you write about his sons and, and about your desire to have interviewed them and, you know, how it would have been great to have their input. And yet I, I think that you always kind of put above all of that, you know, the, the tragedy of, you know, Tom's passing and Ed, Ed's passing shortly after that. And and I really appreciated that, you know, just as a reader, I, I thought to myself, you know, that this is like you cared. It was, you know, it wasn't just about like, oh, I missed out on the interview. You. Um, right. and, 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 and I mean, like, again, as a, as a reader, I really appreciated that, uh, when interviewing, you know, I'm, I'm curious just from not even specifically about the Sheik, but when interviewing so many people and trying to get these stories to piece together this life, you know, at what point do you, do you have those, you know, conflicting stories? And as the author, do you have to maybe make a decision as to which way to go? And I know in the book, and of course, in your author's note, you did your best to present everything as opposed to being the arbiter of what was fact and what wasn't. Um, right. But did you did you ever have instances where, you know, you got conflicting stories and you felt like this is probably the truth and this yes. is probably not? <laughs> so even when that happened, though, I would still try to give all the sides and things. I did that even when I wrote my my history book, Pro Wrestling FAQ, a few years ago. And I actually it bothered some of the historians that I interviewed on that particular book because mm-hmm. they all believe that their version is the true version. And so. When I interviewed them, I think they were under the belief that I was going with their view. And then when they got a hold of the book and they saw me say, well, here's one side, here's the other side. I got some people that weren't happy when, on that, that last book I did, Pro Wrestling FAQ. But that, you know, that's how I prefer to work. And I did it with this book, too. I don't want to be like this omniscient narrator because I feel like, you know, I don't know. And, and I'm not going to pretend that I know something that I know. It's one thing if I'm there, if I saw it, if I know it, that's different. And as far as like, I can use common sense and say, look, let's be honest here. This is probably what really happened. But all I'm going by is my opinion. So like the best example of that in the book is the infamous story of whether or not Vince McMahon had a sit down with the Sheik when he moved into Detroit in 1983 you know, Detroit 
was one of the first towns that he was running outside his territory. Um, even before Hulk Hogan was champion, he already was moving in there. And there was a story that the first time he ran Kobo Arena, December or early January 84, or maybe late December 90, 1983, that he had a meeting with the Sheik. And there's so many different versions. Like apparently George the Animal Steel, who was, of course, working for Vince at the time and was a protege of the Sheik and was from the Detroit area. I guess the rumors started with him. And he had passed it around to other people. I heard it from Dr. Jerry Graham Jr., who had heard it from George the Animal Steel. And the idea was that Sheik had a meeting with Vince where he was humiliated. And the extent of the humiliation, like there were some versions where people said that the Sheik was forced to get down on his knees and beg for a job and then was turned down. There were other versions where it was like more the Sheik's fault, like the Sheik was asking for these unreasonable demands and things. And he was like expecting to have a cut of the house and hmm. to be the top star. And then there were other people that said, you know what? I don't even think the meeting ever happened. That's ridiculous. It's urban legend. Like the Sheik wasn't even running Detroit anymore by that point, which is true. And I said all those things in the book. And I yeah. even said, look, it's highly unlikely that the Sheik was made to get down on his knees and beg for a job. That's ridiculous, you know, but I am going to report that this was the rumor that went around in the business, because I feel like, and maybe I get this from a journalism background. Um, the fact that a rumor exists is news, you know, the, the existence of the rumor is news, but it doesn't mean you pass it off as fact. You right. tell people this weird, crazy rumor is going around. I don't believe this is true. But it's the rumor that's going around. So like in that case, I did that. In a couple of other cases, I did that sort of thing where things just seemed too ridiculous to be true. I also have this thing about myself, which I try to fight when I'm we're in my historian mode, which is I love wrestling urban legends and anecdotes and things. And sometimes in my head, I think to myself, you know what? I'll be very honest. I don't even care if this is true or not. This is such a great story. But I have to resist that urge. I like to relate it because it's a fascinating story, but I have to give like the fine print of look, this is let's not let's take this with a grain of salt. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in a, in a business uh, of tall tales and larger than life characters, it's inevitable that you're going to, you know, ha have those stories. And yet at the same time, you know, like you say, you can't, you, you can't always believe that they're true. And then you, but you don't want to necessarily deny that the story exists. Um, right. Because I think that one of the things that's wonderful about those kind of anecdotes and, 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 you know, the mythology is that it's still tells us a lot about the people involved, you, you know, whether or not it's the person telling the story, the, you know, the, the person the story is about, um, I, you know, there's a lot that we can still glean from, from those, uh, uh, stories, uh, you know, in this case, obviously the, the portrayal of Vince McMahon is certainly not one that is very flattering. Uh, and, uh, I, I think at the same time it, it speaks to perhaps, you know, how desperate people thought that the Sheik might have been, or or in that case, any promoter that was you know having to deal with Vince at that particular point in time. Yeah. Um, so going back just a little bit, I, I you know I wanted to ask this question, um, but you know why wrestling? Like, how did you get into wrestling, and what are your earliest memories of wrestling? Well, I mean, I've been a a fan since I was twelve years old, and I've had awareness of it way before that because. You know, I've had family members that watched it. My uncle was watched WWF wrestling religiously 
Um, he was good night, buddy. <laughs> he was in the theater, so he enjoyed it, like from a performance point of view. Like he wasn't, you know, one of these people yelling at the TV. Like he was usually laughing, laughing his butt <laughs> off at the ridiculousness, but he loved it. So I mean, like I grew up around it, but you know, and so like by the time I got to college and I knew that I wanted to be a writer and I was an English major, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this? I started getting the thought in my head, like, of course, it's one of those things when you're young, it's great. You you can be passionate and chase something because you don't understand how unlikely it is or how unlucrative it is. (laughs) So, so you, you, if you were a rational adult, you would say, forget it. But I didn't do that. So I, in in college, I was already sending, because I was a big wrestling magazine reader in high school and college. And I was sending, I, I had a column in the, in the college paper, a wrestling column called Wrestling Lowdown. And um, I started sending my clips out to magazines. I remember I sent stuff to Bill Apter. I sent stuff to George Napolitano. I sent stuff to Vince Russo at WWF Magazine. I even sent stuff to, in the, the New York Daily News had a wrestling column written by a guy named the slammer. He was a masked columnist. People in New York know this guy. And I wrote to the daily news sports editor and said, I could do a much better job than this guy. Now I never got an answer from anybody, but the ironic thing was the, the daily news sports editor at that time was a guy named Barry Werner who wound up hiring me at WWE because he had become by that point, the publisher of their magazines out of the blue. So, I mean, like I took this roundabout way by the time I got out of college and I was getting, you know, I, I got married a couple of years later. Like I'd sort of given up on it and thinking like, all right, I have to be a grown up. And I got like a real job for a couple of years <laughs> as a writer though, on staff in a book publishing company. And then I stumbled into WWE. It was like I had kind of given up. It wasn't like this cause effect thing. And then I found myself there. And ever since then, I was there for seven years. And ever since then, wrestling and writing about wrestling has always been at least a part of what I do, um, you know, in my career. Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, of course, you were a writer for WWE magazine um, beginning in 2007. You, you know, you ending heard, in 2007. Oh, ending in 2007. Yeah. Excuse me. OK, I, I, mis, I misread that. Then when did you start? I started in 2000. Oh, OK. OK. So for, for those seven years and then um, you, you've written for Inside the Robes, uh, PWI, um, and, and then uh, also have written the uh, uh, WWE Legends book, which uh, Mike and I were talking about right before uh, you, you hopped on here uh, because I have that book. Uh, I, I bought that book when it first came out. And one of the things that I loved about it is that it was an opportunity to read about guys that you didn't didn't normally get that treatment, especially not by WWE. You know, unless you were reading like The Observer or you know had access to to you know old magazines and were piecing stuff together yourself. A lot of those like capsule biographies that you had written, some of those guys you just didn't get that type of stuff yeah. about, especially um, not from the company directly. Yeah, right. That, so that's why I wanted to do that book. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, how did that project come about? Well, you know. Um, when I started there in 2000 and for people that are longtime WWE fans, I mean, you know, they always get accused of, yes, of course they have their own version of history. They do their documentaries now and they have the hall of fame and it's like their version, but people forget like back then, if you go back 20, 30 years, 
there was no history. They didn't yeah. address history in any way. So I'd rather have what they're doing now, to be honest. But at the time that I got there in 2000, they were doing nothing with vintage stuff. And I remember thinking, we are missing. I was ahead of the curve here. I remember thinking, we're missing a marketplace here. Like, what are we doing? There's a whole, we have all this photography and video and things. We could be tapping into an audience or a consumer base of people that are not even watching the show anymore, you know, but they grew up with this person or that person. Why are we not doing this? So I got this idea to do a project that would spotlight the stars of the WWF and the WWF from their territorial era, the people that were major figures prior to the national expansion, even going back to the capital wrestling days in the late fifties. And um, so originally it started as an idea for a trading card set. That's what it was going to be. Oh, wow. And it was going to be called legends of the WWF. And it morphed because I was pitching it and pitching it. And like three years later, um, they were looking for book ideas. This was at a time when they had a deal with Simon and Schuster. If you remember Mm -hmm. that, and that deal was like relentless. The deal was that they had to put out, put out one book every month. Wow. And I don't flatter myself into thinking this was anything other than like, what the hell are we going to put out this month? Let's let Solomon do that idea, whatever that was, that trading card thing. Yeah, it's a book now. So like, you know, that's 12 books a year and they can't all be Mick Foley, have a nice day. And the biography of the rock and the biography of China and Kurt Angle, like they needed something. So like, that's also partly why, like my book, I wrote it over a six month period in 2003 and it didn't get published until 2006. And the reason was it kept getting bounced around with and pushed back because it wasn't a priority. And I'll tell you along the way, Every step of the way, I kept thinking, someone's going to see this and kill it. Someone, Vince, <laughs> Stephanie, somebody is going to see this and be like, why are we doing this book? What, what is this? What is this ridiculous thing? And it never happened. Like, it flew under the radar the whole way. The only thing that happened, and I got, like, so nervous, was the cover had to be approved by Stephanie McMahon. Mm. And I don't know if you have the book or if you've seen it lately, but you know, the cover is like a collage of different WWF and capital wrestling stars of like the 50s, 60s and 70s, basically. And so she, she got the cover and I remember thinking, Oh my God, she's going to see this cover and she's going to go like, what is this book? Like, why are we doing this? She never did. She made one change, which I considered myself so thankful, but it is the dumbest change ever. And I just had to live with it on the cover. You'll notice there's a picture of Bobby Heenan and gorilla monsoon together. Mm -hmm. And I, that picture was originally supposed to be a picture of gorilla monsoon in his heyday as a wrestler, because that is what is relevant to the subject matter of the book. Right. And apparently what Stephanie said to the designer, according to him was, well, nobody remembers him from that. Everybody knows about gorilla monsoon and Bobby Heenan. So that's got to be what's on the cover. And like, uh, I didn't want to bother getting involved with like, look, this book has nothing to do with that. That, you know, th- like that's not even what's going to be covered mainly in here. I just was like counting my lucky stars. Like, thank God that that's all she said. Right. We're going to get to do this book, you know, but I've always looked at that cover and been like, that should have been a sixties picture of girl of monsoon. That's what I wanted. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny. We actually just uh, released uh, about a year ago, or not even quite a year ago, uh, a playing card for Gorilla Monsoon, um, which was which was a big uh, thrill for, for us. From the era, era you would have preferred, yes, I suppose, yeah. too. <laughs> from back when he was from Manchuria. Exactly. Yeah, yes. yep. <laughs> and then, of course, we also, we uh, because Bobby Heenan has uh, been a you know, member of the game for a long time. We also ended up releasing a uh, interview card with the two of them together. Oh, that's um, so nice. You know, yeah. like the primetime wrestling show. But um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, I was telling Mike before we started, I love that book. And one of the things that I loved about the book is that there were names included in that book that were also a part of the game. And so it gave me the opportunity to get a little bit more in depth than some of the bios that maybe had been written, you know, in our booklets at the time, just due to the information that we had available. Um, and and I, I actually, it was around that time that I went on tour with a, a children's theater company and I took that book with me uh, on tour while I was on tour. So oh, thank uh, you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I, nice I, to hear because I, you know, that book I was still writing when I worked there. So I didn't have as much of a sense of how well it was doing or if it was finding a readership. I didn't even, I don't even get royalties on it. I just got a one-time payment for writing it because WWE owns that book. Lock, wow. stock, and barrel. So, like, I always felt like that book is sort of like my stepchild book. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't have as much of a connection to it as the others, even though it was my concept. So, like, every now and then, when someone will tell me, "Oh, I love that book. I read that book. I have it." I'm just like, "Wow, okay." So, I guess some people did like the book. The one thing, you know, that sometimes people dismiss it for, and I, this was because I worked there, and there's limitations when you work there. Sure, is it had to still be somewhat within the bubble of kayfabe. Like if you've read it, yeah. I, I, I still, I write about their lives. I even, I even write about things like about chief J strongbow, not really being native American and his name, real name is Joe Scarpa and those kind of things. But when it came to the, I could never really expose that wrestling was a work in the book. Like I could talk about personas and things, but matches were really won and lost titles were really won and lost and i couldn't i couldn't go as far as i probably would have gone if i was writing the book independently i had to sort of stay in my lane a little bit so i like to call it kayfabe light right <laughs> the way the book was written yeah yeah, yeah. you know it's funny because that never bothered me uh about it at all i just was appreciative i think to have the information about some of those guys because it you know again you really didn't have anything like that at the time that it came out um you know, you, you talked about this. Uh, uh, I don't want to rehash too much because obviously there's, there's some great interviews out there with you available for people um, to, to track down. Um, but that said, you mentioned, of course, that you were there at the Hall of Fame when the Sheik was inducted. Um, had you already at that particular point had an inkling of an idea that you wanted to maybe write a book about him? Was that maybe the genesis of it or did that come way later? That came way later, and that that's a pure coincidence, <laughs> and I'm glad that it happened. I mean, yeah. I had always been fascinated by the Sheik and interested in him from at least, like, my high school years of reading wrestling magazines in the early 90s and stuff, and he was still – he was wrestling in Japan at the time. So you'd hear things of what, what he was doing over there. You'd read about it and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, but – I never thought, I mean, I, that I was going to write a, a book about him, but, you know, when I was thinking that I wanted to do a biography, like after Pro Wrestling FAQ, I started thinking, who is it going to be? And so I would say from around that time period, like 2015, 2016, I was, I was throwing it around in my head that it was going to be him because I wrote a capsule biography of the Sheik for Pro Wrestling FAQ. It's in there. And I actually use that as part of the pitch for the book. 
that I sent to ECW Press. And that really piqued me where I'm going like, okay, this this is a fascinating story. Like, this is somebody I could jump into. Because look, rest, most first of all, most wrestling biographies are auto, autobiographies that are done by the wrestlers themselves or with a ghostwriter. And they're sort of like some of it you take with a grain of salt. They're not what you'd consider, you know, independent, kind of journalistically put together biographies, you know, like the gold standard of what a biography should be. Right. A lot of wrestling biographies don't meet those standards. The Under the Giant one does, the one that just came out. There's the Buddy Rogers one that Tim Hornbaker did. You know, there's some good ones out there, but but most of them are more, you know, kind of spin yeah. it and, works right yeah well in part it's funny yeah. you know when jerry lawler was doing his biography with wwe <laughs> i'll never forget i was backstage at a show and i was walking along with one of my friends and lawler is sitting at the table and catering and he's sitting there with the ghostwriter and he's like giving him notes and they're going over the book and then the, and the ghostwriter's sitting there taking notes and everything and i looked and i turned to my friend and i said you know what i call that a work in progress, <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of working, but with this. So like, if I wanted to, there are so many people even who have done books that have never had an independent biography done. There's never been an independent biography of Ric Flair, of Hulk Hogan, of, you know, of huge stars. There's never been an independent biography the way you'd have a biography of like FDR, you know, right. or, or Elvis never been done. But in the case of the Sheik, I thought, okay, I'm going to go even further. I'm going to go beyond that and find somebody that no one ever wrote a book about. He never wrote a book about himself. His kids never did one, even though they, they claimed they wanted to. The family never did one. Friends, you know, it, he's never been touched. I wanted to go into that uncharted territory. Did it ever, did it, you know, ever seem a little bit too impenetrable did you know did you ever have any doubts along the way where you thought i i don't know how i'm going to do this because he was so secretive well i quickly learned why no one had ever tried <laughs> to do this but i did i'm, I'm not gonna lie like when i when i got started on it i really started thinking like holy cow because i even had it in my head in the beginning like maybe i could get the family to come around and get involved now there's there's bonuses and negatives to that, of course. You know, I could get great stories and insight. I could get a baby picture, which was my dream of all <laughs> dreams. Um, but the downside is then you sort of are beholden to them and they have sort of a stock in it. And I, I liked having more of the independence of telling the story the way I wanted to tell it. But I quickly realized a couple of things like one, there was so much mystery that I needed to be very transparent. Like I was alluding to before about like, I can't just write it. Like I'm the voice of God telling the story of someone's life. Like I have yeah. to be very direct to the reader and be like, look, this is me, Brian Solomon, the guy writing the book. And I'm going to be very straight with you. I don't know if, if, if all this is true. I'm doing my best. You know, I was very transparent and that was the only way I thought the book would work. I, I discovered that early on. The other thing I did when I started seeing that there were certain parts of the life story, the real life and everything that were very skeletal. Like if I just went straight ahead, fact based of just his own life, 
there were periods where it would be very spare. So I started thinking, I need to make this a bigger story. I need to put it in the context of all of wrestling history, what was going on in the whole business. With that context, it was like a, a bigger scaffold for the story, like, like putting the chic in a time and place. What's happening in Detroit? What's happening in the country? What's happening with the NWA? What is Vince McMahon doing over here? What's happening in the business, the NWA conventions? Like I could create a world around him that would cover, very honestly, for some of the empty spaces and blank spots that can never be filled, honestly, by anybody. You know, I don't even know at this point if even the family could because Eddie and Tommy are gone. You know, well, who who would you if you I know you you talked about not being able to talk to Eddie and Tommy and some other members of the family. But if there was somebody outside of the family who you could have spoken to who didn't want to or you couldn't get a hold of for whatever reason, is there somebody you have that you wish you could have connected with? Well, Sabu, I mean, he's part of the family, so I don't know if you'd include him in that. But, you know, um, outside of him, um, somebody that, well, you know, actually, yeah, I would say Mark Lewin. That was a big one for me. That hurt that I couldn't I could not find the man. The man does not want to be found. I tried. Believe me. (laughs) And it felt like I was trying to find Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, I know he did a, a high spots shoot interview a few years ago which is miraculous. Like I give credit to how they got him to do that. But I mean, it was crazy because I remember thinking, okay, Mark Lewin. And I think this is, well, I got to talk to flying Fred Curry, which was fantastic because he, he worked with him more than anybody hardly. Cause you get like Bobo Brazil, the Curry's and, you know, uh, Mark Lewin, you know, those are, these are like the people that wrestled him more times than anybody. And I thought Lewin would be great because he goes all the way back to the 50s and he's still around. And I'd hear all these crazy stories. He's living in Hawaii. He's living in Oregon in the woods somewhere like these wild stories. The closest I, I tracked down phone numbers. They were out of service. I mean, I was like doing detective work. The closest I got is Kevin Sullivan, who has always been very good friends with Mark Lewin. And Kevin Sullivan was great. He gave me a lot of insight, and he talked to me at length. And I broached the topic of Mark Lewin with him. And the impression I get, you know, because it's one of those things, I firmly believe, without question, that Kevin Sullivan knows where Mark Lewin is, and knows how to reach Mark Lewin. And in fact, they probably talk all the time. But he also knows that Mark Lewin does not want to be found. So he, you know, I got nowhere with that. I thought maybe that would be my key, and I got nowhere. So that was probably the biggest living person that, you know, Abdullah the Butcher is another one, but even more than him, Mark Lewin. That was a man I would have loved to be able to talk to him. We'd love to be able to talk to him too. Actually, to try to get him in the game. Uh, yeah, we 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 got Don Curtis last year, and so it would just be it would be lovely to be able to have you know his, his tag partner, but um, for for many other reasons as well. Um, you know, one the of the two things- Jewish white meat baby faces. <laughs> um, the you you mentioned uh, you know the contextualization that you did in, in order to you know 
kind of frame the sheik's life and and how a lot of times in telling his story, you know, you're telling the the story of pro wrestling as well, which I think is one of the things that's remarkable about the book. Um, I know John Snowden commented about that in, in his review of the book, um, which I, I, I completely agreed with um, as I was reading it. And I hesitate to use the word cipher because the, the sheik is obviously this bigger than life character. But at times, did you feel as though, you know, he was kind of your window into telling this larger history um, of professional wrestling because of the length of time that his career Career spanned, you know, going back to the late 40s all the way into the early 90s, you really got this this sense of the scope of wrestling history. Yeah, in a way, I was kind of glad that it worked out that way because he is known for having one of the longest careers ever in the history of pro wrestling. And so it did work out as being like he's this figure that's weaved through the the all these eras from the dawn of television post-World War II all the way through the territories and then seeing what happened to him when the business was changing in the 80s. Like, you know, he was not a major player during the whole Vince McMahon expansion and every, everything you hear about. You know, he was already washed up and done. He was forgotten. But that's part of the story. You know, that's why the the 80s chapter, I called it Wanderer in the Wilderness, because it's like he's the odd man out. And I felt like so that kind of context wound up making the story richer, I thought. So in a way, you know, it was good that it turned out that way. I thought, you know, I was able to tell so much more. I'm one of those people that I I jump at the opportunity to do that because I do have such an interest in wrestling history. Um, because I know someone else who does that, and he's a, he's a great friend of mine. I don't know if you guys have ever spoken to him, but Keith Elliott Greenberg, who mm. we go back to the WWF magazine days, and I always tease him because I grew up reading his articles. But I mean, he <laughs> did the he did the Superstar Billy Graham bio, he did the Ric Flair bio, and he did the Freddie Blassie bio, which for my money is the best biography just as a book. Uh, well, this Foley, I mean, you know, okay fine but 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 the best written overall biography that wwe itself ever put out in my opinion but keith does the same thing where he'll he'll use the the speaking voice of the person and he'll set their life story and everything but he's also telling the bigger story it's important to him to do that in a way that i think if those people blassie flair graham if they had only done it on their own or if they had done it with somebody else you wouldn't have gotten the rich history that you get in those books, but he does the same thing I do, which is like, he likes to put everything in context. Yeah. I mean, even in the opening chapters, when you're talking about like the history of, you know, of Lebanon and, and, and uh, the community in Detroit. And, you know, I, I think that it does go a long way to informing, you know, who these people are, where they come from, you know, the, the importance of that, of that, that backstory. And yet you do it in a way that it never feels like, uh, you know, it's too much. You never belaboring the point, you know, it, it, it all felt like it was essential to, to the text and it was easy to get through and it really did help deflect a lot out about, you know, not only the Sheik's life, but of course his parents and, and his yeah. whole family. It's it's the only wrestling biography that starts in the Crusades, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> but again, that was another, I mean, I hate to use the word trick, that sort of cheapens it, but it was like another strategy because the early life, his pre-wrestling, his childhood 
There is so little known. I found these little breadcrumbs and things that I would jump on, like, oh my God, he ran away from home when he was 12 years old. Yeah, that's incredible. And and he he made model boats and raced them on the river. Like whenever I would find little things, but it wasn't enough to really go into detail on those early years. It's almost like, you know, the life of Christ where you don't know what happened to him (laughs) until he was 30 years old. So I thought like, okay, what I'll do then is what can I find? I could find out what, what, what his parents were doing because there's, you know, stuff on Ancestry.com and what, what, you know, wh- what town were they from? So even though Sheik wasn't born yet, I used a lot of that. There's like 20 years of history before he's even born just to add more. So it wasn't just about wrestling, like where the family come from, where did they settle? Where did they live? You know, uh, what were they doing during the war and that kind of thing? Like, even though that's not just Sheik's story, it kind of like is the story of his family too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've always loved that approach. You know, I think sometimes it can be a little too exhaustive. I've definitely read certain books where, you, you know, I think there's a Beatles biography that I read where it's like, you know, you just spent 50 pages telling me about Paul McCartney's grandmother. I don't know that I needed that. But, <laughs> it, you know, uh, but it does, I mean, it does go a long way to help, you know, setting the stage for, you know, who this person would become. Um, and, you know, I loved the the facts that, that you put together about his military career. I thought that that was, you know, something that... Uh, you know, I had never given, you know, a second thought about, you know, I think maybe I'd probably read at some point that he served in the military, but I didn't know anything about it beyond that. And I, I think that it's one of those things that would probably surprise a lot of people given the the character that, that he created, as it was such a contrast, of course, to, to, to the persona that he had in the ring. Yeah. And, and he also, that was another thing where it seemed like he would kind of work people about it because <laughs> I had to cut through a lot of the, the, you know, phony stuff because some people said, Oh yeah, he told me that he was a, a drill sergeant. And I was like, huh. And then people <laughs> said, Oh, he, he commanded a tank battalion. And I'm going, I'm looking it up and I'm like, he was 19 years old. <laughs> I don't think, you know, he drove a tank. See, but that's how those things get started. You know, like he drove right. a tank and I was lucky because I, I got a hold of his military record, which I knew how to do that because I had I had done it for my great uncle who served in World War II. And I had to provide proof of his service when he passed away for his burial and things like that. So I knew the circuits that you had to go through. So I got his military record. And it was like, it really was like doing detective work. So I look on his military record. I find out when did he when did he get drafted? When did he go into war? When did he arrive in Europe? You know, what what action did he see, the dates? And then I saw, like, what company was he in? What was the actual, like, grouping? And it gave the information. And then what I did was I searched online military records where you can find out what each particular, you know, platoon or battalion unit, whatever the terminology is, what they did. What were their maneuverings? Day by day, town by town, you can look that up. And so all I did was plug in the Sheik's unit and and figure it out. This is where they went. You could find like logs of this stuff. And that's why when you look in that military chapter, it goes into detail like they were in this town on this date. Yeah. They, they, they saw this action on this date. The bridge got blown up 15 feet in front of them. That's all in the military record. So like even though if you look up the record of the unit – Ed Farhat's name is not mentioned anywhere in those records, but you know he was in that unit because you have the military record. So you just, you know, piece it together. That, that's how you do it. 
Yeah, I mean it's it's an it's incredible. Uh, I oddly enough, just about two weeks ago, I received my my grandfather's records uh, in the mail because I'd requested them uh, around the time the pandemic started. So it took two years for them to get to me, but I'm grateful to oh have God. them because it does tell you know it does tell you so much. Um, and and I I, I think. We're incredibly lucky that uh, that Ed Farhat's records were in better shape than my grandfather's because there was a fire at the archives. Yeah. So no, like, no, they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know about that fire because my uncles mm-hmm. and the sheiks were both severely damaged. Like the one okay. I got. Now, my uncle, this is amazing. My uncle still had his original paper from 1945 when he got discharged. Wow. And it was like falling apart. So – his personal copy existed. The one I got from the records department was like half burned up. Yeah. But I compared the two and it was the same document. So with Sheik's, um, right. His had been totally destroyed. So what I got Uh-oh. was like a microfilm negative of it that they had. So it's like all in black with white print, you know, wow. and that's the only thing I was able to get. But I mean, it's still legible. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I you know, want to talk about when he got back um, there, you, you know, you really cut through a lot of the, you know, myths about uh, how he got his start in wrestling and, you know, wrestling at the YMCA or wrestling, you know, Michigan State or, or whatnot. And, and how, you know, a lot of, of earlier talk might have confused his older brother for him. And um, I, I really appreciated the way that you were able to separate all of that. But when you were you know, finally figuring out when and where he got his start compared to what others had maybe written or said before, did anything surprise you about the early days of his career? Well, what surprised me was that, and this was one of those things where I had to be so careful and make sure I was correct and follow, you know, cover all my bases because I was discovering things that no one else seemed to know. So even the people that were closest to him, what they kept telling me was, he debuted in 1949 as the Sheikh of Araby. <laughs> That's the only t- he only wrestled under that name immediately from his first match on. Now, in the back of my head, I always doubted that because I remember thinking, like, nobody does that. There's <laughs> nobody that just appears fully formed in their perfect gimmick that they have. So, so sure enough, I dug around enough and I found out. Which again, when I when I brought it to people's attention, they were blown away. People that knew him for years and years, that he wrestled his first two years, nineteen forty-seven to forty-nine, under his real name, with essentially no gimmick. His gimmick was clean-cut Lansing boy, from, fresh from you know the service, local boy made good, squeaky clean, baby face Ed Farhat. That's <laughs> that was what that was it. And there was a picture even in the Lansing newspaper that I that I included in there. Yeah, I, that was huge. That was huge because no one, no biography or story that I saw anywhere about him included that. It's interesting, too, because that that picture and some of the early pictures that you're able to include, this was a striking man. Like, I mean, it would not be a stretch to say that he was handsome. And yet every image that I have of the Sheik you know, is, is, is not that, you know, is this right. gruesome looking figure. And so it's yeah. so fascinating to see some of those early images that you've included in the book. Well, that, that's another interesting thing about him was that, that, that he was, uh, it's, it's strange to say, but he was a handsome man. He was well put together. He dressed very well. Uh, pictures of him, even during his heyday, 
uh, away from the ring with his wife. There's a picture in the color insert where it's him and Joyce just in a quiet moment together. They're a nice looking couple, you know, and, and, and even when you hear stories about how the Sheik could be kind of a ladies man and how he would charm women and just had a way with, with women. And you can kind of understand it, you know, because out of gimmick, he's kind of this striking guy. In fact, there was a story that um, Jeff Walton told me who was the, the promoter assistant to the promoters in Los Angeles of being at a party with all wrestling people in LA. And he was there with his wife. Jeff Walton was there with his wife and his wife goes, who is that guy over there? My goodness. He looks like a movie star really. Or like a, is he like an oil tycoon or something? And, and, and Jeff had to be like, you know who that guy is over there? Do, do, do you know the guy that we just saw at the arena that was like biting people's faces and throwing fire and screaming and, and yelling with it, with a turban on his head or a kafia on his head. And she's like, that that's not him. That can't be him. That's him. That's him. <laughs> because yeah, it was like, you know, that was, the real Ed Farr had the closest you'd get, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that transformation is fascinating to me. It really is like putting on a character and, uh, and he became that uh, completely. Um, I, you know, in, in the early part of his career, once he becomes the Sheik, uh, it's fascinating to kind of trace the, you know, the crisscrossing of the country that he did and getting exposure in different places. One of the things that, of course, hits close to me because I live in Chicago was that he got a lot of his, you know, his first sort of national exposure in Chicago for uh, wrestling at Marigold, uh, which, of course, was the Fred Kohler show here that aired on the DeMont Network. Um, how I mean, how important was that? I mean, it seems like that was kind of what cemented him as being kind of a special attraction for a lot of promotions. Um, so I, I'm curious as to, you know, what your take is on that particular part of his career. That put him on the map as a known commodity. I mean, it's important to note that he he didn't become a main event star really until he was running his own territory in the sixties. But in the fifties, thanks to the exposure on national television in character, he became known to millions of Americans, which is, you know, he, yeah, he was a supporting player, but he would occasionally be in main events. He would wrestle Raka and there are records of him wrestling Buddy Rogers for the heavyweight title, Pat O'Connor for the heavyweight title, Luthez, of course. So he would get those tastes of the main event. And this was incredibly valuable exposure. And it was like, you know, the, what wrestling became on television, it became much more about characters. You know, I mean, you had faces and heels already for decades by that point, but it became about colorful characters a little bit more over the top, a little bit more cartoonish. That's what they were looking for. And the Sheik was like tailor-made for that, which is why in the book I mentioned how, you know, I don't have definitive proof of it, but I had a really strong belief that it was Jim Barnett that was very influential in getting him there because Barnett was Kohler's assistant. And Barnett was also promoting a little bit in the Indianapolis area. And so Sheik starts to wrestle in Indianapolis and then the next thing you know, he's on the Dumont Network. So, so I found it to be a logical connection that Barnett, who always had a, a, an eye for that and had an instinct about talent, that it's not hard to make that leap of it. You know, Barnett saying, 
Freddie, we have somebody here that I think will be perfect for your show, for this show we're doing, you know? And, and Sheik became one of that initial kind of cast of characters that people never forgot. That's the thing I mentioned in the book too. Even after Dumont was dead and gone and Kohler was out of the business, like those people could continue to, to live off of the reputation they built. People like Dick the Bruiser, Bobo Brazil, Buddy Rogers, you know, uh, Thez and, and, and the Crusher and Killer Kowalski, because they had been on that show and everybody remembered them from that era. And, and they, you know, and, and Sheik was definitely one of those people that was like a game changer for him. There were a few different moments like that. Like Amarillo was where he really got to main event for the first time consistently. There were these things that were like turning points for him, but Chicago is a big one. Yeah. Would, would you consider, I, I was going to ask about Amarillo cause he, he held the, the Texas heavyweight championship. That wasn't necessarily, was that the first title that he held or, or had he held others prior to that? But that was probably the biggest at that, that point was, in his career. That was the first singles title, the Texas heavyweight title. Okay. The first title he held was the Midwest tag team title that he held um, with Gypsy Joe, I believe it was. And that was for Kohler. Okay. But, but um in Amarillo is where he was first being put consistently in main event programs like wrestling, Dory Funk Sr., Dory Funk Jr., and just like being the top heel. He would come through and be the top heel in the territory for like a couple of months and then go back. And that was like a proving ground. It was the first place where he really got to show what kind of a drawing card he could be. In fact, in Lubbock, which was like the B town of that of the West Texas circuit for whatever reason, even more than Amarillo in Lubbock, he was like a phenomenon where, <laughs> and, and the promoter there, by the way, um, um, Nick Roberts, who's the father of baby doll. Um, I just talked to her for my own podcast and we brought up the chic, but it was that town that he became a phenomenon in and started getting more and more buzz because of that. He lived in Texas for a long time, like a year at a time because he was doing so well down there. He brought Eddie jr. Down there and, and Joyce and they, and they lived there. They were, they were um, in fact, for a time they were um, roommates with leaping Larry Shane and his family down there. Was Texas uh, where he really started to kind of, you know, hone his uh, his brawling skills? I, I mean, obviously he had the, the the character. He had kind of this, you know, not quite madman persona, but he was certainly a little wild. But it, it seems to me that he was wrestling up yes. until that point in his career. And then he got to Texas and started to maybe brawl a little bit more. I think he realized that he had to stand out because that's something that – sort of gradually happens over time. And eventually it just devolves like by the seventies where he's just, that's all he's doing is just biting and stabbing and everything, you know, in the sixties, it's sort of a combination where he, yes, he could go for like an hour draw. He can go hold for hold, but he's also going to like, you know, throw fire and things like that. It was a transition, <laughs> but yeah, if you look at some of the Chicago stuff, which some of it's out there like Dumont, from Marigold, but also from the International Amphitheater with the great sardonic Russ Davis as the announcer on that show. He's just so phenomenal. I just love the way he tries to always act like he's above it all, like he doesn't want to <laughs> sully himself with wrestling. It's, it's awesome. But the chic on those shows, very conventional. I mean, yes, he has a character. He has a gimmick. But once the bell rings, it's a very conventional 
type of wrestling and match. And I think he may have realized that he was never going to really stand out that way because look, let's face it. There were many, many people who could do that better than he could. I mean, you know, right. Luthez is Luthez. Luthez doesn't need to, you know, ride a camel through the middle of town. Like Luthez <laughs> can get the job done and you watch him wrestle a match and it's like unbelievable. Buddy Rogers, even people that, that could captivate you with, you know, the way they could block out a match that wasn't his strong suit. So, so he started to go down a different route and yeah, I mean, you know, in, in West Texas, they were known for that crazy style even back then. And not only just West Texas, the state of Texas, in a lot of ways, that rough hardcore style, even before the chic was born down there with people like Bull Curry and, and, um, um, Oh, who's the guy that was throwing chairs back then? What the hell? Irish Danny McShane, Irish Danny McShane. There was a lot of that going on in Texas, even in the forties, you know? And so they were open to that kind of thing. So, so yeah, I mean that, it, that it seems likely that that was the place where he got more comfortable doing more of the brawling stuff and the blood too, because you couldn't do blood on national television in the 1950s, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's when those things start to creep into the act. How influential do you think Bull Curry was for the Sheik's career? Because it seems like that was someone that really helped, you know, kind of set him off as far as seeing that, he, oh, I can do this. I can do that. Yes. Very influential. Very influential. Because, you know, uh, Bull Curry had a career that may have even been longer than the Sheik's career, you know, from the <laughs> 30s to the 70s. And he you know, is another one not as well known as he used to be these days and even less well known than the Sheik is these days, which is a shame yeah. because he really was, you know, I know I wrote the book on the Sheik and the Sheik was extremely influential on hardcore wrestling and the wild brawling style. But if you really want to go to the genesis of it, it's Wild Bull Curry for sure. I mean, it, it's him. He he was the guy, uh, even going back to the 30s, you know, doing doing blading and chairs and tables in the 30s, you know. Uh, so and, and not only that, but like he was big in Texas, but also big in Detroit. He was like the number one Detroit maniac before the Sheik. Like he set the template. <laughs> so Detroit was ready for this kind of thing because they had had Curry. He was Lebanese, same same as Sheik, that bonded them together. And also, I, I, I believe, I didn't include it in the book because it was, uh, you know, I got this from talking to the Curry family, and I just wound up not going into detail on it because I didn't, uh, I couldn't completely confirm it. But I do believe that the Sheik as a child and his family used to go to wrestling at the Olympia Stadium in Detroit, and they would have been exposed to Curry uh, for sure, because he was the biggest star for a while there. So, I mean, I, you know, that it, Curry is definitely one of the biggest influences on the Sheik, for sure. Yeah, he he's a guy that I knew very, very little about. And then he actually has a game card as well. And uh, when his card first came out, I was immediately kind of drawn to him. I was like, I got to know more about this guy. And so it's through the, you know, honestly, the game has benefited, you know, I think a lot of people that way in, in discovering people that, you know, have have a game card that, that you know, I think otherwise would probably be a little bit lost uh, into the mm -hmm. sands of time, unfortunately. Um it seems to me that, you know, kind of talking about those pivotal moments, another one for him, and, and this could be said of, you know, many, many wrestlers throughout the years, 
was his time in New York. Uh, I, I'm, you know, and, and he, he went to Madison square garden, you know, talking about like being on TV and how that exposed him to this huge audience. Do you think New York was the thing that maybe cemented him in a lot of ways with, with wrestling promoters as well, because they saw that he could draw in New York. He might not have been on top of the card, but he was still someone that was, you know, being put, you know, second right. to last or third to last. Well, his relationship with New York was interesting because you know, I knew that he had come in and out and I knew about the, that he had his program with Bruno, which was very famous. But but another thing I wasn't totally clued in on until I wrote the book was that there was like a, a year and a half to two year period there in the at the end of the 50s, at the very beginning of the 60s, where he was working exclusively for Capital Wrestling and Vince McMahon Sr., exclusively mm-hmm. only in the Northeast. He was teaming with Bull Curry as a tag team. He was also doing some singles matches. He was appearing at Madison Square Garden for the first time. You know, he, he and Bull Curry against Miguel Perez and Antonino Rocca, yeah. main event at Madison <laughs> Square Garden, the hottest tag team in the business and probably in the history of professional wrestling. And they're working with them. So, I mean, um, Vince McMahon had an eye for that kind of talent. That That's the type of people that he liked to use, you know, the WWF has always been a circus from the very beginning. It wasn't just <laughs> something that his son started. So, you know, um, he was there for a couple of years and raised his stock value. Absolutely. But it's interesting to see then that when he comes back almost a decade later, he's a very different chic. He is one of the hottest stars in the business. And he comes in to work with Bruno San Martino all around the horn and pop these houses um and these towns but also the other thing is from working in new york he got a lot of nuances to his act there are things that he got directly from vince senior like using his wife as the valet as the slave girl Mm. that was a suggestion of vince mcmahon shortening his name to the sheik instead of sheik (laughs) of araby that was a suggestion of vince mcmahon who by the way seemed to have a knack for naming wrestlers. This is something I've discovered over the years. He named Hulk Hogan. He named Bruiser Brody. He named Haystacks Calhoun. I believe either he or Jack Pfeffer named the fabulous Moolah. Uh, he named Black Jack Mulligan. I, I mean, he just, he can't, he would come up with these iconic names for guys. And he gave that suggestion, you know, because the, the name Sheik of Araby, it's in the book, but it's, <laughs> it's based on a popular song. Yeah. And if you were living in the 50s, it was a song from, you know, about a generation before. It was from the 20s and 30s. It was because of Rudolph Valentino and the movie, the silent movie, The Sheik. And by the time you're getting into the 60s, I think it was sort of like, well, listen, that's a very old song. And I don't know if everybody's going to get that reference. So why don't you just call yourself The Sheik? And, And he did. And that's how we know him today. So, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, like working for that territory, was was another big piece of the puzzle it's like outside of detroit it's you know toronto it's amarillo it's chicago los angeles new york like those are the most fundamental areas that really got him his steam um mike before i i, I want to get into the 60s and stuff but mike uh you've been a little quiet i'm, I'm wondering uh anything that you want to interject here and, and ask brian before we kind of move on to to some other topics well, you, you jumped in on a few of the things I was going to touch, Sam, that I've written down here. But I guess in terms of was, would, would you say that the Currys, you know, were 
sort of the most revealing interview, like getting Fred Curry to sort of fill in some of the blanks with that based on the history between the Curry's and, and, and the Sheik with that. Is that well, how you'd feel about it or, or am I no, too no, much that, into that? That's true. That, that was a very valuable interview because, you know, talking to p- people that were his contemporaries, that were his age, kind of impossible. You know, if the Sheik were alive today, he'd be 96. So, Talking to people that were his true peers, it just wasn't going to happen. But not even Fred Curry. Fred Curry, you know, is a generation after him. But um, Curry, of all the people I talked to, was the person who was most plugged into the Sheik's inner circle and was there as a Detroit mainstay and still living and I was able to get a hold of them and talk to them, you know? So, so yeah, he was probably for the sense of, of someone who was the closest to the Sheik. He may have been the most valuable interview there was. He was the one that gave me real insights on what his relationship dynamic was with his wife, Joyce, who was able to get very candid with me about some of the demons that he was getting involved with later in life that are very delicate and sensitive. And I didn't want to broach unless I really was like rock solid on it, you know, drugs and women and gambling and things like that. But um, he, he could speak from a place of authority because their families were friends, spent a lot of time together and still completely with it, lucid, totally able to talk. Cause that's another problem you run into, unfortunately, as people get older, you know, but he was phenomenal. Great. And he lives not far away from me. He's about an hour north from me in Connecticut. I've been trying to get him and his son, Nick, to come down to the house. <laughs> well, I, I think that because to me, I think for people who haven't yet read the book, I think it's a really important that, you know, one of the fears I know a lot of people have is that with a book like this about someone with such mystery, do you, do you sort of kill the myth by revealing the man? And I think you, you walked a really uh, great line here where you you explained what happened to him. But I don't think that you took away from the Sheik. In fact, I think you in some ways have added to his mystique by you sort of bringing him back into focus. Um, so I think that people should really take a look at the book just for that reason, is that it's a rare book. You know, we were joking earlier about, you know, most wrestling biographies are works to some degree. Um, but this is really more of a history and I think that that's, uh, you know, I know that was your intent based on what you've said here. And I think people, you know, need to go into it, understanding that, um, that this is a different kind of wrestling book. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, I, it, it's sometimes been something I've had a fight against because, um, you know, I, when it comes to wrestling books, I think sometimes, and I, I I'm going to paint with a broad brush here and try not to be too condescending, but I think sometimes, sometimes people who read wrestling books only, I don't think they're reading a lot of other books and they may not always understand the process of how it is done. Because if if all you know is wrestling books, wrestling biographies as (laughs) cash-ins, as propaganda pieces, right? I've faced the thing of people going like, well, are you giving the Sheik's family any of the proceeds of your book? Are you, uh, you know, don't they deserve this? Or aren't you giving them, uh, aren't you giving them a piece of this? Like, this isn't the mafia. You, you know what I mean? Like, if I'm, if I'm writing a biography of, you know, uh, of, of, of John F. Kennedy, 
I don't have to like track his family down and, you know, like kiss their ring and, and give them a taste of my book. Like that's not how this works. So I, I think that if you see, but if you read a lot of biographies outside of wrestling bubble, <laughs> And you understand that's how a biography is done. It's meant to be objective. It's meant to be, it's meant to be independent. The best biographies are. And so sometimes, sometimes you fight against those notions that people have. If, if you have this, I hate to say like sometimes carny wrestling mentality, everything to you is a cash in and a, and, and a cash grab and a, and a, and a con or a dodge or like, look, I, I'm a teacher what I got paid to write this book, God bless ECW press. I could make in about six weeks as a high school teacher. That's not why I did this. Okay. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes to get people who only think in wrestling terms to understand that I did this to tell a story that needed to be told. That's it. The, the number one reason anyway. Yeah. I think that, you know, there, there are, we're so fortunate in this particular era to have the you know the volumes uh, of books that have been written on professional wrestling that wouldn't have been possible you know 25 30 years ago and i i think that the the truth of the matter is when you look at all those volumes that the the number of authors um that i you know generally find to be objective and 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 also write well uh is it, unfortunately it's fairly slim and that's not to disparage anyone who might not necessarily be a gifted writer because i think that the work is still valuable because they're uh, adding to that that tapestry of wrestling history, you know, if they're keeping it objective and, you know, able to, to shed a little light on something maybe that we didn't have before. But, um, you know, I, I, I just can't help but, but reiterate that I feel like that this is definitely the type of book that, you know, if you're reading wrestling books, you need to have on your shelf. Um, I, you know, I, I, I genu- genuinely believe that Blood and Fire is, is, is one of the best wrestling-related books that I've ever read. And I'm someone who reads quite a lot and reads biographies of people outside of wrestling. So, you, you know, I, I genuinely mean that. And, 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 you know, your journalism background shines through, I think, as well because of the way that you have, you know, uncovered these facts and organized them. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask about before I get to Bobo Brazil, because that's somebody I want to talk about, uh, it, it, the the photos that you have um, it, throughout the book are I, I, incredible. I mean, just incredible. Not only, you, you know, some of these photos from the 40s and 50s that I, I – I question, you know, if you could count on one hand the the number of people that might have seen them before this book came out, you know, at least at least in the past, you know, 20, 30 years, that is. Living people, maybe. Yeah, yes. th- there you go, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, but the quality of some of these photos, in spite of the age, is quite stunning. Um, so I, I would love for you to, you know, maybe give a shout out to some of the people that, that, that helped you with those photos and to talk a little bit about the importance of having those photos in the book. Sure. Um, I knew with a book like this that photography was going to be crucial because that is what made the chic. I mean, photography in wrestling magazines is what made him a huge national and international star. So I knew that was going to be a major piece of the puzzle and I was going to have to make sure I had good contacts. Um, I honestly don't feel I had as many personal pictures as I would have liked to have had. There's mm-hmm. a few in there. There's a great picture of the Sheik dancing with his mother-in-law at his son's wedding, which is pretty awesome. Um, but, you know, for the wrestling stuff, you know, I had to be very careful about who I asked. You know, like, for example, Dave Drazen, Dave Brzezinski, 
he also became uh, one of the main sources of photography for the book because he shot so much of Sheik's matches and things. I would say maybe 75% of the pictures in the book are from him. He was great. Um, I got pictures from Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I drove my editor-in-chief there, Kevin McElvaney, insane. So I'm very <laughs> grateful to him. He's a very busy man. He had to pull photos for me. He's the one that pulled the photo of the Sheik and Bull Curry against Miguel Perez and Antonino Rocca from Madison Square Garden, which wow. was like his second appearance there. He just found it randomly. He was like, how about this one? Does this look good? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> no. So so that he was a great source of photography. Uh, Brian Bucantis had great photography. John McFarlane, who was another guy that was a chic regular. Uh, Howard Baum, who shot him when he was in uh, championship wrestling from Florida in his later years. Um, there were God, so many, but, but, um, but Dave Brzezinski was the chief source. I also wanted to include things like, um, wrestling magazine covers. Like I said, that was something that was so, such a, a common thing to see him and Bruno were like the two biggest cover guys of their era. And so there's a whole section in the color insert that is just, a gallery of wrestling magazine and program covers that the Sheik was on. And I would have included even way more than what's in there, but there's budget, <laughs> you know, limitations on those kind of things. But, but I, I'm pleased with how the photography turned out for sure. Yeah. I, that's the first time that I ever saw the Sheik was, was uh, in a magazine. I think I, I would have been maybe 12 or 13 at the time. And uh, so it would have been like 93. Uh, and I, I remember it was it's at the back of the magazine. And, you know, here's this guy with, you know, blood on his face, you know, salt and pepper, you know, beard and, and just wild eyed look. And I mean, it, even then, you know, it scared the hell out of me and it, and it, and it, and it burned it yeah. into my brain. You know, I've never forgotten that, that picture. I don't even know if I have a magazine anymore to be, to be honest. Um, so I think it does, it, you know, it obviously goes a heck of a long way to, to, to telling that story and to really fleshing things out. Um, so, you know, we've kind of gotten to the point, I think that, that uh, to talk about the Sheik, you, you really do. There are certain names that you really have to talk about. And for me, uh, the one that has always been the most intertwined with his name is Bobo Brazil. Um, you know, you do a wonderful job of introducing him, you know, kind of into the story and, and talking a little bit about his background and his importance, you know, in, in, in pro wrestling. Um, but as far as you estimate things, how important, you know, were they to one another's careers? And do you think that, at any point that maybe Bobo's career ended up being limited because of the time that he spent, you know, with the Sheik and in Detroit, could he have, you know, have spent more time elsewhere and been a bigger star? Oh no, I don't, I don't think he was limited at all because, you know, he, he was in that era, one of those guys that could tour anywhere and be on top wherever he went. There were those, the Sheik was another one, but there were people like that, that, were not just regional they were they were not just stars in every territory but main eventers in every territory and and he was one of those i mean that was never an issue i i don't i don't think i mean you know he spent time everywhere not just in the detroit area but the sheik knew that he needed to have a foil and you know if you look at their feud which everybody talks about how it went on forever and it did <laughs> even though they wrestled you know, in the 50s, once or twice, 
it isn't until the Sheik takes over big time wrestling that they really become these regular opponents all through from the mid sixties, all the way through. So, you know, so you don't even get a year until like well into the eighties where they don't wrestle each other, which is crazy to think about. And their last matches in, I think 1990 or 91, if I remember right from the book and, you know, they were great friends, which I wish I could have had more on that in the book, but they're both gone. You know, I would have loved yeah. to have talked about that friendship, but the Sheik put up Bobo Brazil in his house when Bobo was going through a divorce and his wife had essentially kicked him out of the house. He was staying at the Sheik's house, which I think fans would have lost their minds if they knew that at that time. <laughs> they wrestled each other. I mean, I found hundreds. I found at least 300 matches. I'm sure it's many more than that. That's what I was able to find. But I mean, he, you know, originally he wanted, I think, his his number one face in the territory was going to be Larry Shane, who was another great, great friend. And Larry Shane died just when he had bought the territory. Mm-hmm. And then it wound up being Bobo. But see, the other benefit you got from Bobo, because Sheik was very smart in that way that savvy promoters were back then, is you know in a city like Detroit, which has a large black population, that you especially can do well with someone like Bobo Brazil, who not only was he a black wrestler, but he was the number one black wrestler in the entire industry. And he's from the Michigan area, tailor made the perfect guy for the fans to get behind and root for against the Sheik. So it was just, it was very smart to do that. I'm not saying it was just a cynical move because in the book too, I talked about how the Sheik was conscious about race issues and discrimination and things. And I think that was time in the military. Right. 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 And that was another reason that he used Brazil so much. I believe, you know, it it was like, you know, a lot of these guys, a lot of these times you see it where, you know, yes, it's always about making money, but, but there can also be principles as well. Um, But if you can make some money too, (laughs) it doesn't hurt. (laughs) That's sort of like the wrestling ethos, you know? Right. Right. Um, You know, and that's the thing, too, is it's about people. And I think making that supposition about, you know, what he saw in the military and, 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 you know, tying that to the way that, you know, he pushed Bobo Brazil and and even the way that he, you know, saw himself and and his own background, um, you know, I think just getting to the kind of the humanity of that, it's something that we all hopefully can connect to. And I think that that's always the wonderful thing about any biographies when you find those moments of, you know, of kind of, um, um, you know, pathos that you're able to just really, really kind of understand and, and get into, to the minds of these people. And I know obviously for the Sheik that that's difficult because he's somebody that, you know, seems so impenetrable for so many years. Um, so we, you know, the trajectory of his time, obviously in uh, uh, Detroit and 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 booking the promotion and and owning the promotion. Um, you know, he also had that time in Toronto. Uh, do you do you think? Uh, I, you know, at the end, obviously he wasn't, but but he was very successful for you know a very long stretch of time as as you know a booker and promoter. Um, what do you think ultimately kind of drove him to to not be successful? Well, it was kind of like what happened in Detroit, too, except I think even worse and even more kind of precipitous was just he just kept doing the same thing over and over again. <laughs> and there's only so long you could do that for. It was amazing in the beginning. You know, Frank Tunney in Toronto was seeing the success that Sheik was having in Detroit right across the water, you know, 
And he thought, well, maybe I could get a little taste of this. And he kind of made a deal with the Sheik, which turned out to be almost like making a deal with the devil in a way where I think he came to regret it eventually because, um, you know, he had this undefeated streak, 127 singles matches without a loss. And I think it was like from 1969 to 73 or something like that. And, um, you know, he was beating everyone. He was he beat Luthez. He beat Bruno San Martino. <laughs> he beat Jack Briscoe. He beat the Funks. He beat Whipper Billy Watson, Gene Kaniski, Pat O'Connor, like everyone that came through. He won. He didn't always win by pin, but he won. He never lost. He didn't even lose by DQ to these guys. Luthez came through more than once and lost. <laughs> To the Sheik. <laughs> and people just were getting Tiger Jeet Singh, who they had the biggest numbers in the history of Maple Leaf Gardens, the, the biggest wrestling crowds that that building ever saw. But eventually, the problem is if you're doing this with a baby face, it's one thing. People want to see Bruno San Martino win over and over again. That's what they're there for. They right. wanted to see Hulk Hogan win over and over again. They did not want to see the Sheik win. They wanted him to lose. And when it never happens ever, people give up. They, 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 they give up. It, it goes beyond just like building tension and we're going to root for these baby faces and somebody's going to do it. When it never happens, eventually they just get sick of it and walk away. And that's what started to happen. In the book, I talk about how the turning point was Andre the Giant. You know, he pulled that with Andre the Giant. And Andre, who was fairly a rookie still at the time, but still was not in the habit of losing matches at the time that he wrestled the Sheik, He had not lost a match for a year in any way, not even DQ. And he lost by count out. And I think that was a turning point where the audience was just like, look, can't you even lay down for the Sheik? Like this is <laughs> for, for Andre, the giant, like this is ridiculous. Andre, the giant, you can't do the job for Andre the Giant. Who do you think you are? Yeah. And 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 you know, even if they weren't verbalizing it in that way, it was like that was they were like, okay, this guy is gonna beat the Sheik. There's no way this guy doesn't beat the Sheik. And when even he didn't do it, mm. and then you see what happens after that is is eventually the streak ends, and then the business in, in Toronto starts to go down. And by 1977. Tunney gets out of business with the Sheik, kicks him to the curb, starts co-promoting with Vince McMahon, Jim Crockett, Vern Gagne, getting all this fresh talent in because they were stagnating. That's the problem in Toronto and in the Detroit and surrounding areas. It was stagnation. If you look at those cards, you look at what was happening. It was a lot of the same matches, the same feuds, the same stars year after year. There was some change, but you don't see it. If you look at other territories, there's far less change going on and people just got bored. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. Uh, you know, we have, uh, I mean, Travis obviously uh, is a huge Memphis fan and I always, I always look at Memphis as being kind of the, you know, the outliers that they were able to oftentimes do a lot of the same things again and again and again, yet with enough variation that, you know, that they kept things, you know, going for, for such a long time. And that fan base was, you know, was there for it. Um, but 
you couldn't really do that anywhere else in the country. It seems like, you know, you, you, you really had to have somebody else to be on top. Um, I'd love to, to hear a little bit more about the, the Sheik's time in Japan. Um, you know, he, he does the, the, the brief time with Inoki and then goes with Baba. And then obviously eventually when he's, you know, more advanced in years, comes back and does the stint with FMW. Um, you had mentioned earlier, you know, titling the eighties chapters as, as, you know, wandering in the wilderness, how much of, of him going to Japan, you know, was precipitated by the fact that he didn't necessarily have many places to go once the national boom hit in, in the United States. Yeah. Because he was pretty much done. I mean, he, he, he went into semi-retirement in 1982 where he's no longer doing a full-time schedule. He's doing a few matches here and there you know, a couple matches a month or, you know, wherever special spot shows and things. And he had kind of stopped and I don't know what he would have done. I mean, he needed money. He, he went bankrupt a couple of times. He would then start to make money and then lose it again. And the opportunity presented itself with FMW. Um, the Sheik had made a name for himself in Japan in the seventies and early eighties. He was one of the top um, even though he was not marketed as being American, but he was one of the top <laughs> American wrestlers going into Japan, definitely, especially among the heels. And he was kind of, he, a whole generation of Japanese fans had been exposed to him there, wrestling Baba, wrestling Sakaguchi, even wrestling Inoki and, and all the all the big names over there. Um, with the Funks and Abdullah and, and coming in for the World Tag League tournaments in, in all Japan. So that now you're a generation later, Tsushi Onita, who was a young boy for Baba, who was carrying his bags around, carrying the <laughs> Sheik's bags around. He never forgot that, you know. And um, he, he, he wanted the Sheik because he also knew the kind of promotion that he was going to be doing. And, you know, he had... The Sheik was benefited by the fact that Onita was all the way in Japan. He really didn't know how far the Sheik had fallen. He didn't even know if he was still alive. He didn't, in Japan, his name had not tarnished as much as it had in the United States. So he thought, well, first of all, I'm going to figure out if the Sheik is still alive, if he can still wrestle, and I want to bring him in. And the Sheik used that as a chance to make a lot of money, obviously, but also get exposure for his nephew, who he was trying to make into a star. And he did by bringing him to FMW, even before ECW, it was FMW that made Sabu a star. And um, look, it may not have been the smartest move health wise and all this kind of thing. But like I've said before, they were offering, offering him chic $10,000 a match. And when I say match, I'm talking about <laughs> three minutes of running around the ring, shaking a sword and yelling and standing on the ring apron, mostly while Sabu like flies all over the place. Now, who would say no to that? I wouldn't yeah. say no to that. Even if I was 65 years old, I'd do it. I mean, you know what I mean? Especially if you're really in the hole. Right. So I understand why he did it. It was a, a deal that was important possible to pass up i and 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 he went back to a full-time schedule so like 91 92 93 94 he's wrestling a full-time schedule going to japan six seven times a year at the three or four weeks at a time and wrestling every day and when you break it down at ten thousand dollars a match you see that he made millions doing that so you know why not 
Right, right. Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure that that picture that I was talking about earlier was from uh, a barbed wire match that he that he did uh, over there. And, and and if I'm not mistaken, it was like something like, you know, seven or not 76, but but like 66 year old, you know, Sheik is, is in a barbed wire match in Japan. And I, you know, just just remember being astounded by that. Um, do you do you think there was any truth? Because I think I think it was Sabu that I heard say this, that one of the reasons why he, he was paid so much and he was brought over is that apparently the the yakuza was a big fan of the sheik it's true <laughs> that is true um and you know this, this made me laugh i mean i don't mean to be flippant but like what was happening with kota obushi recently with yeah. with um in japan and the, and the shock of with the yakuza is involved with japanese wrestling right. what is this there needs to be an investigation <laughs> how can we how can we allow this and I'm going, well, they killed Ricky Dozan. Right. They've been involved with Japanese wrestling for as long as there's been Japanese wrestling. They loved the Sheik. This is true. They would wine and dine him. They would take him out. They would give him jewelry. And he would be in character, which is incredible. Wow. Wow. He would be in character because they believed that that's what he was, that he was a crazy oil baron, that he didn't speak English. So you just picture him at these tables with these Japanese gangsters. They don't speak English. He's not speaking English. He's maybe got Sabu translating for him or whatever. And they're giving him jewelry. And it was very much a thing of like the sheik would say to Sabu, like, listen, just go along with it. These guys love me here. I'm going to just go with it. And, you know, we're working them. That's fine, whatever. But, you know, (laughs) this is a good thing we've got going here. And he absolutely benefited from that. Yeah, they loved him. Yeah, that's incredible. Incredible. Uh, Mike, before before we wrap things up here, anything else that you wanted to ask? Well, I guess, you know, you touched earlier on how, you know, there hadn't been a really a biography done like this before in, in wrestling. So now the the chic bi- biographies out there. Who's the, who, who's the top <laughs> name that needs a biography now? I have. Yeah, there are, there are a couple that I have in mind. I don't, I, I don't want to say because I'm worried that if I do, someone else will jump on it, but <laughs> okay, I have well, a, how about one that you won't do that you'd like to read? <laughs> well, uh, one that I won't do, but that I'd like to read. Um, well, you know, uh, I, I think that uh, somebody who really should get uh, a proper treatment would be Bruno San Martino because mm-hmm. he had his own autobiography, which is great. It's very old. And um, I think it would really benefit from somebody telling his story as from an outside perspective, telling the story of a cultural and sports icon of the 20th century, you know, more than just a, bi- a short biography. You know, I, I think he deserves better um, than that. I, I wouldn't do that because I'm more interested in writing books on people that have never had any kind of book written about them. And I have a couple in my mind of people that are absolutely deserving and I would mention in the same breath as the Sheik, but also have never had a book done. And I've got them in my mind, and I I will try to do one, if not both, of these books. But I don't want to say who. 
Well, I certainly hope so, uh, because I absolutely uh, have enjoyed um, Blood and Fire. Uh, it, it, it really, it really is one of my favorite. Uh, wrestling-related books um, that I that I've ever read, um, Blood and Fire: The Unbelievable Real Life Story of Wrestling's Original Sheik. Of course, you can find it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. Um, whether you get the electronic copy or physical copy, uh, of course, that's not all. Um, I, I read that you have a superhero book uh, that, mm-hmm. that you're working on, uh, which I, I'll be there for as well. Uh, and of course, uh, your podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle, um, which uh, has about 20 episodes uh, available uh, as as this drops, um, talk a little bit about the podcast. Cause I know, uh, I know we've got people that are listening that do listen to it. It was suggested to me by a fellow promoter, uh, someone who works on the game, um, Chad Olson. So, um, there, you know, there, there are people out there already suggesting it to me, uh, but I'd love to hear more about it from you. I had wanted to do a podcast for the longest time. I just didn't know where I'd have the time. And I was also concerned that, you know, I'm not, you know, especially before the chic book, like I, I'm not some like known commodity to the degree where I felt like, oh, this would be a sure success. And I was very hesitant about the, the prospects of like trying to find an audience, you know, and for a while I was trying to find a co-host and thinking how, how what's the format going to be. I wanted to do something that was about old school wrestling. That was the idea that, you know, and I know enough people where I could line up some really good guests for a long time without having to reach out to people that I don't know and cold call people. And I could really just call in like favors from people that I know, but I was looking for the platform and I was kind of putting it off. And then what happened was I wound up uh, being invited to come on the 605 Super Podcast, Brian Last's podcast. The first time I was on was talking about the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, you know, just out of the blue randomly. And then he had me on to talk about my experiences working for WWE and the book that I was at that time working on that led to the Cornette appearance. And then before you know it, like I'm thinking in my head, okay, now people are talking about the book. They're talking about me. Like I've been, I talked for an hour and a half with Jim Cornette on the number one wrestling podcast on the planet. (laughs) And I'm thinking like, okay, maybe I should try to do a podcast now, you know? And I thought to myself, like, I'm not going to presume that, they're going to want to carry my show. So I thought, I'm just going to do it independently, see what happens. The second I announced it, Brian was just like, you should do this with Arcadian Vanguard. Like, if you don't, you're crazy. Why would you do that? And I'm thinking, like, I I never presumed that they would even want it. You know, I wasn't, like, just, like, trying to, like, you know, like, go. I got to go my own way. I just thought, who would want to carry this? And he gave me the platform again, which I'm like super grateful for because it's a built-in audience and it's a, it's a family of podcasts that is a known commodity. And so I jumped at that opportunity and, you know, it's called shut up and wrestle, which was the title of a column that I wrote for WWE.com about 20 years ago that got me about 15 minutes of infamy in the pre-social media internet world of message boards and chat rooms and things (laughs) like that. And I remember, I remember um, um, Brian Alvarez famously saying that I was absolutely going to get fired for writing this column, but it got me some like infamy and, and that, so I, I just wanted it to be a callback. So I wound up calling it shut up and wrestle. And like you guys were saying, I, I started doing it in February and I've been able to get some really great guests and yeah. it's a different conversation every week, depending on who the guest is, you know, but it's always focused on vintage old school wrestling. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an incredible uh, list of, of guests. Uh, Les Thatcher, who uh, we actually had the chance to speak to a couple months ago, uh, um, Rob Van Dam, um, uh, Manny Fernandez. I mean, there's yeah, there's there's, there's a wonderful, wonderful group uh, of people that you've had the opportunity to speak to. And, and I look forward to going back and listening to more because I've only had the chance to listen to a couple of episodes thus far. But um uh, I, I'm again. I'm, I'm thrilled with the opportunity to speak to you. There's one question that I wanted to ask you that has absolutely nothing to do with the Sheik uh, or the book or any of your other projects. But it was it was a tweet that you put out a couple of nights ago. Oh boy, uh, what did last, I say? Last last <laughs> yeah. week we uh, uh, we you know we we talk about real world wrestling as well as stuff that has to do with the game. Obviously, in interviewing you, but. Um, one of the things that we talked about last week was the Sasha Banks and, and Naomi situation. And you, you tweeted out, uh, it's very telling how every time a WWE talent has a big falling out with the company, other contracted WWE talents will post subtle messages of support on social media, like frightened hostages. And <laughs> I, I thought that that was, I, I, I mean, I completely agree with you 100%. Um, and, I'm curious as to your thoughts on the situation, knowing that we cannot know exactly what happened, no matter what is out there, you know, in the ecosystem. Uh, and and certainly, you know, what might have precipitated you tweeting that? Because I, I, I again, I thought it was spot on. Uh, and I think it is very telling. Because what, what made me think that is whenever that happens, you know, it's clear that everyone agrees that the person if they're showing support that they believe the person was right in their convictions to do what they did. And, um, but they're afraid to fully commit and say it in so many words, you know, so they'll post like a picture that they took together years ago or, (laughs) or some kind of cryptic message about believing in yourself or whatever, you know, because they don't want to just come out and say it. And it does give the impression of, of an unhealthy environment, unfortunately of people who, are basically thinking this is a lot of shit and this place kind of sucks, but it's a living and I don't want to screw it up. Like, 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 like there's a weird vibe you get from when things like that happen. But I, nine times out of 10, I'm going to take the side of the talent in cases like this. Yeah. You know, this reminds me very much of what happened with punk and people lost their minds about him in when in 2013, I guess, right? It was or 2014. And I remember at the time going, good for him. Yeah. Good for him. He's looking out for his interests because in this business, no one's gonna do that except you. And WWE, unfortunately, and I single them out, but it's the whole business. But WWE has set the trend of training fans to take the side of the company. In these subtle ways that they do it, all these things like talking about, you know, this kind of like fetishization of how superstars sacrifice their bodies to entertain you. And we love the fans and we're so grateful to you. They, they set this standard by which if any wrestler says, well, I don't want to do that. Whoa, 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 hold on a second. They're immediately the bad guy. Yeah. Immediately. How dare you? How dare you not want to sacrifice your body for my amusement in any way that the promoter tells you to do it? You know, you have to look out for your own interests in this business. You got to be smart. You can't be a mark. I'm sorry to have to put it that way. Mm -hmm. You cannot be a mark for the business. And they were smart. And it sounds like this has been brewing for a long time. And I, 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 I kept getting the sense that 
you know, it's this really weird thing was going on between WWE and Sasha Banks. Yeah. I'm sure other people noticed where they were doing these weird tribute videos to her that had nothing to do with anything. They would sometimes run them on shows where she wasn't even wrestling. It was like they were trying to butter her up somehow. And then Sasha would tweet these weird kind of um, cryptic things about Vince McMahon and like this weird teasing kind of tone, just odd. And it, so it didn't surprise me that it was leading to this. And, you know, I mean, uh, again, the, you got to do what you got to do. You got to look out for your career, for your livelihood, for your well-being. You do not owe these companies anything. You don't owe them your bodies. You don't, you, you don't owe them this stuff. They will take advantage of your passion for what you do. They will exploit it. You got to use your head. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, ironic what, that the company that was saved by Stone Cold Steve Austin doesn't take too well to when a real life Stone Cold moment comes right. up. Well, he did it too. And right. I was there when that happened, when he took his ball and went home and all that, <laughs> all that stuff. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, he, he, he probably of all of them had the least argument to do it but you know because he, he he was feeling like he was starting to slip down the ladder a little bit and he was getting very sensitive about it you know when as soon as hogan and 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 because he his thing was he was very sensitive about he felt disrespected like all these people left the company they left you high and dry i lifted the company up and now those people are back and you're putting me down. So even though I don't think that was really fully what was happening, but that's the way he perceived it. So he responded. But again, he, he was looking out for himself. And look, that's what you got to do. It's just they've created an environment where there's an assumption and a belief that you shouldn't put your own needs first in the wrestling business. You know, right. it's what the fans want and what the company wants. and It's, it's propaganda. You know, that's what yeah. plain and simple. Yeah, it, yeah, and one of the things you know, you, you have, a, I think, a select few people that kind of just do whatever they want, like a Randy Orton or something like that. But then, you know, I, I think that somebody like Sasha Banks, and this is one of the things that I said last week, is that she has gotten to the point where she doesn't need WWE to be successful. Not that she's bigger than WWE or anything like that, but she could go to Japan in a heartbeat. She could obviously go to AEW in a heartbeat. She could go to Hollywood. And, you know, it's like, I'm sure that, you know, they'll put her on the Mandalorian again. You know what I mean? She's got other options. Yeah. And, and, and I think that it is good for her. And, and, and I completely agree with you that, you know, in this, in this particular instance, especially like, you know, the talent having the opportunity to stand up for themselves and, and make that choice is important. And it's not a freedom that, you know, that they've always had. And it's, and it's a freedom that if we're going to be completely frank has absolutely cost people their lives. So yes. I, I think that, I think that it's important. Yes. And, and it's also unfortunately created a generation of, of even wrestlers who have bought into this mm -hmm. nonsense and who believe that that's what wrestling is about. You sacrifice your body. You sacrifice your interests. The more you sacrifice, the better uh, of a team player you are. You know, they've bought into this because they grew up with it now. They grew up with the propaganda. Whereas, ironically, if you look at the old school guys from the earlier generations, they knew that it was a lot of bullshit. They knew it. <laughs> right. They saw right through it. This is a dodge. This is a con. I'm going to make as much money as I can and get the hell out. 
You, you know what I mean? Like that yeah. was that was the thinking of these guys. Promoters are out to get me. I got to look out for myself. If I don't like what's happening here, I go over here. If I don't like what's happening here, I go over here. They they were smart. They didn't get caught up in the romance of it. And it, some did, but the ones who did, they met, they ruined themselves. And they were looked at by the other ones as, could you believe what this guy is doing? You know, he's living his gimmick. He's ridiculous. You know, he's he, he's he's not going to have any money left and all this kind of stuff. He's destroying his body. They understood it. But WWE worked very, very hard to, to kind of flip the script and create this different narrative that now you have a generation of wrestlers that believes, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I think that it's a very, very interesting story to say the least. And I think that, you know, seeing not only uh, this, but obviously you mentioned the Kota Ibushi stuff earlier. I think that there are examples right now, literally worldwide of wrestlers who are saying, wait a minute, you know, that we're not going to do this this way anymore. And I think that's a great thing. Um, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in AEW over the next year or two, because there are clearly already grumblings there that some of the talent's not necessarily happy with the way things are going. And I think how they respond to that will be very telling, especially considering that the company was kind of, you know, the genesis of it was from talent, you know, from, from wrestlers getting together and saying like, Hey, we want to do this. Um, so it's just a fascinating landscape right now for professional wrestling. And the idea that, um, you know, that, that, that talent would even feel empowered to, to, to say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And, um, I wish that I wish that the situation were a little bit different so that the other talent could feel empowered to support them vocally, as opposed to having to do it so subtly. Um, but uh, but all that said, Brian, I cannot thank you enough for joining us, for spending your time with us. We we certainly uh, went longer than I anticipated, uh, and uh, it, this has just been a joy. So uh, I certainly want to give you the opportunity to, uh, you know, tell everybody where they can find you and, uh, you know, plug all the things before we get okay. out of here. <laughs> well, we mentioned the podcast, which is Shut Up and Wrestle, and you can find it. The website is suawpod.com, but it's also on Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. Um, the book, Blood and Fire, the Unbelievable Real-Life Story of Wrestling's Original Chic. Honestly, Amazon's probably the best place to get it. I am selling signed copies. If people are interested in buying signed copies from me, they can reach out to me at my email address, which is Solomon at yahoo.com. Um, I'm... On Twitter and Instagram, Brian R. Solomon. You can reach out to me there too if you want to, you know, for purchasing copies of the book. Um, Shut Up and Wrestle also has a Facebook group. If you look it up on there, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon, you'll find it. And I've got an author page on Facebook as well, which is if you look up Brian R. Solomon, you'll find my author page, which includes like everything that I do, you know, wrestling and otherwise. And it has a link even to my actual author website. So there's plenty of ways that people can find me. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I will eagerly await whatever is next, including the superhero book. Uh, and obviously any wrestling related stuff that you've got, uh, coming, um, I will be waiting with bated breath because uh, I will say once again, uh, and I'm not just blowing smoke that the blood and fire has been one of my favorite wrestling related reads, um, ever. And I, I think that it belongs on your bookshelf. So if you're listening to this, you probably already have a copy based off of what I've been seeing on the message boards and, and what a lot of our fans have, have been, have been talking about. But if you don't, um, uh, wholeheartedly gets my recommendation. Uh, I think Mike would agree. Correct, Mike? 
Absolutely. No, <laughs> no questions uh, asked there need to ask. It's a great book. It's a great read. Uh, as a former history major in college, it's a, it's a style of book that I really appreciated. I'm not one for the uh, for all wrestling books, but this is one that I definitely had to pick up and I'm glad I did. Thank yeah. you. Wow. Thank you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I can only hope that we can add more to the bookshelf. I, you know, I, I have uh, all of Rock Rim's books and I love Rock's stuff so much. Great. I think he's just, you know, he's, he's one of the best and I want more Brian Solomon books now so I can put them right up there next to him. Um, Brian, thank you once again. Uh, we truly appreciate you joining us and uh, uh, we're going to we're gonna let you get out of here uh, and get back to, to our regular scheduled programming as well. Great. All right. Well, thank you guys. This has been a pleasure. As you can see, I can talk about this stuff forever. So not a problem at all. Anytime you want me, I'm here. That's awesome. We're, we're going to take you up on that. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, our thanks again to Brian Solomon. Um, that was a heck of a lot of fun. I really enjoyed uh, every minute of it. I, I felt like you know people have gotten a great uh, uh, taste of what to expect from the book. Um, there's just so many wonderful stories there, and you know by you know, using the history of professional wrestling from the late forties all the way through to the early nineties as the backdrop to tell this story, you know, the business decisions that the Sheik made, uh, made, you know, for better and for worse, the, the booking decisions that he made, the evolution of the character, you know, you learn so much about pro wrestling and about the character. And through that, you know, kind of the, 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 the miracle of the book is in spite of not having some of those personal details and having some of those personal interviews with, you know, with family, uh, you do get a, a sense of who this guy was, of who Ed Farhat was, in particular who he was before he became a wrestler. You know, there's, there's, there's um, just kind of a great window in in those early chapters, um, you, you know, from, from kind of just his family coming to the country, uh, to his birth, to, to being in the military, all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, I feel like in some ways, you know, the endeavor might have been by by a lesser writer by a, by a lesser journalist to try to separate Ed Farhat from the Sheik and in a way because Brian couldn't do that it it's almost like well maybe that's because that couldn't be done and so the story of Ed Farhat really is the story of the Sheik yeah i th- i think that you got that right sam i think that it's um it's a remarkable book. I, I think, it, like I said, it doesn't do anything to diminish the legacy of the Sheik. I think it, yeah. it enhances it and, and puts it in context with the history of wrestling. And I, it's a, it's an outstanding book. So, um, you know, gl- glad we were able to, you know, spend some time, a lot more time than I thought we would get with Brian. Yeah, I know, me too. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it was uh, just, an, it, you know, it's an outstanding book. I was, I'm glad I read it and I recommend it to anybody out there who's listening. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about it is that, you know, he does the the admirable job of, of staying objective. It never devolves into hagiography. It never becomes something where you, you know, you just feel like this is someone that's been put up on a pedestal by the author. Um, it, it remains objective and, and it really follows the highs and lows uh, of uh, Ed Farhat's career as the Sheik. Um, and I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's it's one that I'll definitely revisit. Um, and, and it's quickly climbed the, the, the 
list to, you know, one of my favorite wrestling related books, um, which again, as somebody who was skeptical from the get go, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that I went all in with it. Um, so that brings us to the end. We're, we're going to get out of here. Uh, we're going to go home. We're going to have uh, ourselves a, a good evening. We hope that you do the same. Uh, as always, you know, uh, keep the dice rolling. Mike, anything to say before we get out of here? Uh, you know, goodbye to our friends on the Baltic. And uh, shout out to all our fellow podcasters. But are you going to do that for us? Are you going to run them down for us there, uh, Sam? I can do it. Yeah, absolutely. You I do can it? do it. You do it. Uh, so of course our friends over at, uh, the Uncharted Territory podcast really enjoyed the last episode. Uh, it was such a thrill to, you know, to, uh, actually I guess it was the episode before last, uh, where, where we got to see the, the, the playthrough, uh, of some matches, um, was a heck of a lot of fun. Cannot wait to, to hear the, the second half of the Bulldogs and Midnight Express. Uh, it was, it was slightly spoiled for me, but with good reason, uh, truly enjoyed that. Uh, so make sure you tune into the fellows podcast, uh, every week. Uh, of course, Lee Longpre with the Dizzy Dice, he just released a new episode. Um, don't forget, of course, uh, Brock Atkinson with Brockster Builds on the Twitch channel. And of course, uh, he and Mike Fortune doing their character spotlights, um, posting those over on Facebook. Um, and everyone else out there is creating content and doing anything to help enhance this wonderful community, this wonderful game community. Um, you know, hit us up. Uh, if we're not mentioning you by name, say, hey, butthead, why aren't you mentioning me by name? And I will make sure I mention you. Um, because I, I can't. Don't call him Beavis. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that show's coming back, isn't it? Anyway, um, so uh, all that said, again, thank you all so very much. Uh, get your pre-orders in. You don't want to miss this. Uh, even, you know, if things are, are arriving maybe a week late, uh, you will be very happy that you've pre-ordered and don't have to wait around uh, while while we figure out what's next. And, and it'll be soon, it'll be time to begin the Road to Galacticon, which seems insane to me, but it's true. It's right around the corner. Uh, so, you know, get on booking your tickets for that, book your hotel book your flight whatever you got to do if you're coming out to chicago it's going to be a heck of a fun time can't wait to see everybody and uh that covers it so take care of yourselves take care of one another stay safe out there and we'll be back next week for a brand new episode of roll up